Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bill Bailey, Tony Croft, Chancey Croft. We're at Croft Vineyards in Salem. It's May 24th, 2021. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Sure. Uh, the, first, the first question to get us all started is uh, why wine? Uh, it has a wide human appeal uh, to each of us, certainly, but to a lot of people. And we didn't grow up in this kind of uh, atmosphere, but when we first came in contact with it, we, we liked it. For me, it was Napa. And we um, had sort of had a dream that that we might get involved in wine uh, because we went to a party at one point and we're supposed to design something that was part of our dream and both of us separately came up with, he came up with a a coat that said Croft Vineyards and I came up with a wine bottle. So we all looked at each other and said, wow, this is something we we really want to do. And then yes. Bill called us, who they, they were working down in, his wife, he was working with his wife down in Napa, he called us and said, let's go Oregon, because Oregon at that point, the land is available and it's a new uh, industry. And it has the the history. Uh, any place you go in the world, with minor exceptions, there's some involvement of wine. It, it is, in one sense, the universal language, um, and it, it, that is even expressed, I think, in in wine country, where it's sort of a. Um, uh, element of exchange that if you visit somebody you bring a bottle of wine and the like so it has that history and it's not like cucumbers or kumquats that um, you, you you can trace it from the very beginning the, the plant to the bottle and the tasting and you can't do that with at least the big majority of, uh, of farm products. We were living in Anchorage, Alaska, and Chancey is a grower. So he, he, he was trying to, and Lee was helping him. Lee was our major uh, uh, kid that helped us him grow. But in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, the growing season is about two months long. <laughs> so, and the original idea was, when, and they can tell you how they got into the original um, field, but we were just going to grow grapes. That We weren't going to make be a winery or, Chancey was just going to be a grower. And he loved, he loved it. So that's, that's why we did. I would like to point out that during that two months growing period, <clears throat> Alaska can grow a cabbage as big as that barrel. So it's, <laughs> there are trade-offs. <laughs> So let's back up a second here and let's talk about before wine. So you mentioned Alaska. Tell, tell me, for Chancey and Tony, tell me about your lives before wine, uh, how you met and, and how you were, what you were doing in Alaska. 
I went to Alaska because Tony said she would marry me if I went to Alaska. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I checked with Bill. Uh, we were pretty sure where it was on the map, and we decided to go to uh, Alaska. Um, we had the previous year gone fishing in New Mexico. I'm, I'm from Odessa, Texas, and it's the heart of viticulture and fishing. Uh, it's a thousand miles in any direction from Odessa to get to it, but Odessa's right in the center of it. Uh, and um, so we got to talking, you know, what are we going to do next summer? I graduated from law school. <coughs> Bill was a little slower and uh, graduated the next year. And uh, so we decided, well, why don't we go to Oregon? And then, hey, yeah, while we're there, we could go to Alaska. And then the question was, well, why in the hell are we coming back? <laughs> why, why don't we stay there? So we started writing letters, offering to teach or do anything that might get us a job in Alaska. Um, but anyway, we drove up the highway, got to the Canadian-Alaska border, and uh, the guy waved us through, and as we passed through, he said, happy starving, and uh, we drove on to, to Anchorage in 62, uh, in and then Tony and I got married in 63, and our honeymoon was a trip to Alaska, and uh, Tony and I couldn't find any employment outside, but Bill did after 13 years, and he left. Uh, and then uh, we get this call from him one day saying, uh, I'm down here in Napa, and he can tell you about that part of it. And uh, we really can't afford any land in Napa. But they tell me that the future of viticulture might be in Oregon. So do you want to go to Oregon? And we all swore that we would go to Oregon and we would not buy any property. That was it. We were just looking. No cash was going to leave. And we got here. Another story about who we met and how and, and the like. But we finally, the day before we were to leave, walked up to the top of this place <coughs> on the highway out of... Uh, town and yeah out of, out of Monmouth and just fell in love with the spot so they forced me to make an offer on the property which uh, the people countered but eventually um, we wound up buying it was a horse pasture but it was a beautiful horse pasture most of it you can't grow grapes on but uh, 12 14 acres you can and it's a uh, really interesting site. You have to know how to farm it, which we learned after 30 years or so. Jancy persuaded me twice to go someplace that would do this sort of we He persuaded me to go to Alaska saying it's, a, it's only four years after statehood. There's, it's lovely. If there's a, we can, it's unfinished, right? We can, we can help finish it. Same thing happened with the wine area. You know, it's just starting out here and we can be part of it. Uh, he made a connection uh, with Dickie Ray, and who, through Knutson, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we had a friend who... who, who Knutson E. Rath 
for the partnership. And Knudsen was married to Jack Roderick's uh, sister, a friend of ours in Anchorage. So, so that they was set us up with meeting with Vicki Rath. We had, we went, he was very congenial. We went to his house. He talked to us about all the stuff that was happening. And he said, uh, I, we know somebody who's uh, showing wine area. It was at Winquist and Seeley, which I think ended up with not the best reputation at the end, but for us, he was really a good guy. So we called them and they took us around. Yeah. Most of which we didn't like, but the one that we saw, we did like. So there we were. They took the, they took the offer. <laughs> and there we were. But, but also in that trip, we met Joel Meyer. Um, we had called um, uh, Papa Pino, and we, we had, he was doing evaluations or assisting or for $100 or something like that. So we decided, well, we'll at least spend $100. But when we got there that morning, he was there with Joel. And he said, look, something's coming up. But Joel knows more about that than I do. And so we started a lifelong friendship with Joel Meyer. And uh, he and I, a year ago at a conference, uh, were talking about the fact that we had sure looked at a lot of land um, and tried to buy a lot of it that uh, is now growing grapes. But we only did it twice and we both decided that if we had bought additional land we would either be very wealthy or bankrupt <laughs> one or the other and we weren't sure which so i'm going to come back to you for I have a question for you in a second bill but my first question uh, you mentioned you looked at a lot of property you chose this particular property and joel and joel was there to evaluate it tell me why that spot what what about the spot made you think this was the place you wanted to buy in oregon well, because you could picture it, it was a, a horse pasture, basically. Um, uh, four or five acres are on the other side of the hill, and, and you can't farm it. Two, one and a half or two are on the other side of the highway, and that doesn't work either. Um, but it was, you walk up into this uh, grove of oak trees, and what's still remaining after the, <laughs> the ice storm, um, and you have just a magnificent view. You can see Mary's Peak, you can see the coastal range, and you can look at the bare fields so you can picture it. You don't have to cut down trees or do anything else. You just, we did cut down one tree right in the center of the field. You just Otherwise go in and plant. Otherwise it's kind of a fairy ring of oak. And the table are now made of one of the oaks that fell. I sort of promised the oaks at one time I would take care of them. So when this tree fell, we had a slab and it took four years for it to dry. And then Terry and and, and uh, Lee had it made into the tables. So these are this is these are the oaks from the the original um, uh, field. And we planted recently. Well. Winchwiston Seeley said, for this, I forget the amount, what a quite cheap amount, we can plant this, this for you. And we said, oh, well, it's not that expensive, right? <laughs> they planted it with a, a Christmas tree planter. Most of them were Riesling. Some of them were Chardonnay. It was pretty much a mix. 
And Reishi was not a good choice for that site. So we, uh, we, we sold Riesling for a couple of years and then yes. it rained early and totally wiped out the crop because it, was just, it took too long to ripen. So we replanted. And when we replanted, we replanted with own-rooted um, Pinot Noir. It wasn't American roots. It was, we were a long way at that point from any other field. So, and then, Chanty would come down about at least once a month, and we had uh, a guy who owned, had, had worked with fruit trees, doing, I'm not sure how soon Brian came in, but at one point Chanty came down, we sort of, I sort of had this idea, we'd have this small little place, we'd sort of totter out when we were 90, and take care of the vineyard, Chanty came down here one time and said, oh, by the way, when he came back, I just bought 50 more acres. I said, wait a minute, what? I thought we were, so you can explain what happened about the, the 50 more acres. Well, we got into a family fight and somebody wanted to get rid of the land instead. <laughs> but I think we represent the ultimate reversal of Bismarck's famous statement. Bismarck is reported to have said, um, only a fool learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And so we were the fool that everybody in Oregon could, <laughs> could say, hey, don't do that. Croft tried it and it, <laughs> Croft Bailey tried it and it didn't work. Um, so I, in that sense, we have a history, I think, that m if other people in Oregon had it, they wouldn't admit it. Um, but it, it eventually worked out all right for us. Yeah. It turned out that the second <coughs> vineyard, which is, it was the Totten vineyard. It was Ed Totten that uh, sold it to Chancey. And he had plum, he had cherries and, and prunes. And it is the most gorgeous spot. It's a unique little spot between the Van Duzer Quarter, which goes on one side, and I don't know what's on the other side, but it can be raining everywhere else and it won't rain on us. It's very sunny, it's very warm, and the land is marvelous. We've quickly learned that the Croft Bailey land while it grew grapes with much minerality, uh, wasn't necessarily as, as good as, as Croft. Yeah. Good though, it makes good mineral. If you, if you age it, it's really it, it, Because some of the soil is, it, it's a hillside that uh, varies in, uh, from the top to the bottom of uh, more than 100 feet. The, the top is really shallow soil and the bottom is pretty thick from having uh, run down the hillside. And so it's really difficult to farm. But, and we never get big production like we uh, did uh, out of uh, Croft. Uh, three tons to the acre, I, I don't know that, I don't remember a time that with whatever crop we had in, we exceeded that. But and some of the time you wouldn't want to release it after one year in cake. You'd want to wait to the second year. But it just makes a seven. very distinctive uh, 
wine, uh, but it takes some working with. And when when you know it, it uh, produces a really outstanding Pinot Noir. So I'm going to back up for just a second. I have many more questions about that, but I'm curious from your perspective, Bill, since you were the one that kind of got the ball rolling here, what about being in Napa, being in wine country, made you A, want to get into the business, and B, want to get to Oregon? Like You, you mentioned kind of Oregon as an affordable place. Was there something else about Oregon that made you want to be here? Um, when I left Alaska, my wife and I left Alaska in 1975, we traveled uh, for a year and then settled in Napa in 76, which is the year in which they had the famous Paris tasting, uh, at which a Napa Valley white and a Napa Valley red were the, the consensus favorites, and that really changed uh, the wine world's look at American wines and Napa Valley wines. Um, a few years after that, my wife went to work for Michael Mondavi, who was uh, Robert's son and, and president of, of the winery at the time. And so that was our entree into the wine community of Napa. It was still just a pleasant growing valley at that time. It, it had just a great human appeal for that reason. Not much traffic, there's things growing, not just wine, but things to put on the table and enjoy. Um, and during all that time, uh, and because of that tasting in Paris, the prices of vineyard land in Napa and Sonoma started jumping up. Uh, in a conversation with the vineyard master at Mondavi, can't remember his name, Italian fellow, who was very knowledgeable. Um, I asked him, could you make money investing in wine then? He said, probably not at these prices. He said, the best opportunity is the cool climate viticulture of Willamette Valley because he said the grapes grown here uh, could stand up with the, to the grapes in the Burgundy region of France. Um, he knew what he was talking about because he was in the business and been successful for a very long time. And he was very persuasive about it. It wasn't just a, he didn't just throw out that comment. He developed it at some length, why it was true. And so I passed that on to Tony and Chansey. And coming up here to look at it was at least an adventure. And uh, so we did that without the real intention of, of making a commitment, but uh, and seeing it and enjoying it and examining. And um, during that trip, we saw a lot of properties um, many of which probably better suited for uh, growing grapes. But when we got to this property, it's just where you want it to be. You know, it, it had that, that vista uh, that had all the trees around it, but it, it just felt right. And that probably was very persuasive. And so we made that commitment. But the vineyard master had suggested Pinot Noir would be the best grape because 
it does so well in Burgundy, I hear. And that's not what we planted the most of. So we were making those kind of mistakes. But I think their determination and ability to follow through with the project they undertake is really what got us out of those mistakes and into producing good grapes. So things didn't turn out very well for Winquist and Seeley, uh, as you may have heard from talking to other people that were around in the early 80s. Um, and I, we've talked to quite a few people that said we ordered uh, um, Cabernet Franc and it, it wound up being uh, um, <coughs> Uh, Nebbiolo or, or whatever. I, I think that we were really taken advantage of by Winquist and Seeley because we actually ordered Riesling and they delivered Riesling. And uh, I mean, if they had treated us like they treated everybody else, we would have probably gotten Pinot Noir and we would have been in good shape, but that didn't work out for us. One of the I, early decisions that was a key decision that Chancey made is to go organic. We were never, he said, we're not gonna go with all these chemicals. We don't want our workers in the chemicals and we don't want to do, we want, well, Lee uh, a while ago did our three goals for, and it's still, those three goals still stand, that's our son. The first one is leave the land better than you found. The second one is make money. Make money. <laughs> and the third one is have fun. So it made, leaving the land better than we found it was critical from the beginning. And all of our vineyards, both of them, have always been organic. We weren't always certified. We got certified in what, 2007? Uh, five of the first five one, yeah. Oregon Pilt, and then now we're certified with the state. Let me mention, so I, because I, I don't want to forget it, we bought that land in uh, 83, and it was in 1984 that the Oregon wine industry had its first conference, Cool Climate Viticulture Conference. And that itself was a tremendous boost. I, it's really to the credit of, of the Oregonians that they were perfectly willing to have other people come in to share their knowledge. Adelsheim could tell you all sorts of things about the various varieties. Um, uh, they were just extremely helpful. Every once in a while you found a crotchety old person that, that wouldn't give you any information, but basically they wanted to share it because they, this was all, they were doing it together and they wanted the best result possible. And uh, so from the very beginning, they, they, that attitude existed. And that was really important. Tony's right about taking care of the land, but the, the people in Oregon in viticulture were perfectly willing to help any way they could with other people that were, because they wanted Oregon to be known as a good wine producing area. You mentioned me meeting some of the people early on, Dickie Rath and David Lett and Joel Myers, uh, and et cetera. I'm curious, tell me your sort of initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry when you got here. What, what were the, you mentioned the people, 
who were the people you met and what were their what were their kind of commonalities and what did the industry look like to you coming into it? Um, they, they were finding their way as well. It wasn't that they didn't have opinions. They did. Uh, and uh, the, the commitment was to Pinot Noir. And one of the things that I think has now changed, uh, not just because of what they're doing in Southern Oregon, which is not Pinot Noir, but even in the Willamette Valley, the question is, what grapes you're going to grow in this climate um, now with climate change. And I, I think the Oregon wine industry is well prepared to address that. Uh, I, I think from the very beginning, there's been this commitment that we are going to do the best thing that we can. And we're not going to be hidebound by regulations, as, as I think uh, France has been somewhat paralyzed with their regulations instead of um, advantaged by them. Uh, so I, I think the Oregon wine industry is a very helpful ordinance. And we planted on both what we call Croft and Croft Bailey, which after Bill left became Croft Williamson, which is my husband. Um, but we planted on own root stock, and it was okay for Croft Bailey Williamson for a while because that's very a very isolated area. But rather quickly, Philoxera came into the, uh, a vineyard next to us, and from that vineyard it came into ours. So at one point we had to pull up on Croft everything that we had already done and replant on American rootstock. And we're now completely planted on American rootstock in both vineyards, but um, that was another you know, mistake. And then we had, to, we had to fix it, which we did. Turns out that Croft grows great Sauvignon Blanc. It's just that warm site. And so we have, <laughs> Uh, we've been able to sell, sometimes when Pinot Noir is a glut, he's able to sell by selling, say, oh, well, you can have some of the Sauvignon Blanc, but if you do, you've got to take our Pinot and make it too. And so we have, I mean, the other thing, this is you made that I really like, is that he wouldn't sell to poor winemakers. He only sold to people that he knew were good winemakers. That, that's nice because if they put your name on, the label and they're a great winemaker, it makes a good reputation. And, and, and it, I don't mean this anything other than as a compliment, but the fact of the matter was, even in the 80s, there were winemakers that were as noted for their ability to take whatever grapes they could find and make a palatable wine out of it and not say, no, we're not, not taking that fruit because it's not gonna make a great wine. There just wasn't the, there were more winemakers than there was, than there were um, fruit available. And uh, so there were some people whose real expertise was taking whatever was brought in and making a palatable wine. And, 
and then you could think later on about how can we make a great wine and that part of that is you have to reject some things. Dick Erath one time said that we had some extra Pinot left over and he said, well, I'm full, you know, my wine is just full. He said, well, I've always kind of wanted to ferment it in the bins. Why don't we try this? You know, we'll make a village and we'll just ferment it in the bins in the, in the outside. And he did, and he made a very good wine. Um, so Dick, of course, is, you know Dick Ingram. He's quite the character and we really like him. He gave us a lot of stuff. You mentioned that the original goal was just to farm, just to grow grapes. So at what point did that take the next step into actually making your own wine? You want me to say? Yeah. Well, I remember it this way. I'm not sure it's true. The symphony in Anchorage wanted some wine, and so we had it put together for them. We weren't selling it. We just did it for charity. And they said, this is great. you got to sell it. And we, we kept saying, well, okay. Why don't we do that, right? And you guys can speak to how that went. My recollection was it happened because we started getting among the top prices for the Pinot in the Valley as growers. And it was valued, I think, more as a blend than, than uh, bottled uh, entire. And so in 1998, a good season was developing and it was going to be a good year. We decided to custom bottle in 98. We did it again in 99 and 2000. That 98 wine was excellent and only 200 cases. It didn't lead to uh, um, the wine making then, but it, it took us through the whole cycle growing and, and, and making the wine and marketing in. We and had uh, at one point, well, Lavelle did the uh, first custom <coughs> and Gary, uh, Gary Carpenter, who was the um, winemaker there, did our, the, made that. I really enjoyed meeting with Gary and having him show me, you know, we can do this, we can do that. Would you like to do this, would you like to do that? Um, and even after he left Lavelle, he did some work for us. I forget which year, 2007, I think, before we switched back to Chris Heiner. Our, our Pinot Noir apparently was unique um, because uh, I can remember uh, someone from the French Burgundy region came over and was tasting our wine while it was in Lavelle's uh, barrels, and he had a hard time believing it was a Pinot Noir. He thought it was a Merlot, didn't he? I mean, he thought it was a, a richer, a more robust wine than a, a Burgundy Pinot, which is a little thinner. And uh, he thought it was also very good wine, but uh, not, not a Burgundy Pinot. Actually, we didn't go from Lavelle to Chris Hyder. We went Lavelle to uh, Oh, huh? your Laurent. buddy, Laurent. yeah. And he made a wine for us a couple years. Mm -hmm. In fact, Chancey decided, okay, we're not going to do wine anymore. And I said, okay, we'll just grow. And then the end of that season, he said, uh, well, you want to come with me? We're going to take this wine over to Laurent and see what he will do with it. 
I said, I thought, I was always saying this, I thought we, <laughs> anyway, we took it in, but we, we had all been out in the field working and harvesting, and we, we came into Laurent, and Laurent's secretary, I guess, came back and said, there's a whole bunch of field workers out there, they're delivering, you know anything about this? We were kind of embarrassed that we were so grubby, but we had been um, harvesting. You some of the time have to be flexible about your absolutes. <laughs> no. I would say that it also helps the wine valley, valley as it did Napa and Sonoma to be near uh, a large population base, the Bay Area and San Francisco, for instance, uh, particularly cities that have uh, a lot of good restaurants and, and people that appreciate good wine. Uh, Portland is that for the Willamette Valley, and, and also Portland is a, is a wonderful American city. I mean, if, if it weren't so wet, I think everyone would live here. <laughs> but that's a factor also in promoting a, an area's wine production. So I want to talk about the farming itself a little bit. You mentioned some kind of some some mistakes early on, some lessons early on. So tell me about what was different about growing wine grapes than other things you had grown. What did, what did you have to learn, and, and what were some of the biggest challenges in the early days of getting the vineyards going? Uh, well, when Winquist and Seeley planted in '83 um, <clears throat> um, that vineyard, they planted it on 12 by 8 spacing and so that that was a disaster what we now have at that vineyard is eight by three and a half but the, um, it's only a, a single shoot that uh, is used for the production and uh, it works a lot better for us but that type of thing is what you had to learn and it, I mean, they had the double curtain and a lot of other things even before that uh, occurred to us. So that, that was one of the first things, how, how you're going to grow it. And um, if you're on 12 by eight uh, spacing, that's less than 800 plants um, per, per acre and uh, at eight by three and a half you're at 1500 so you have twice as, as many plants uh, and that means that particularly uh, on a site where you have shallower soil you can get more production you might not get four or five tons to the acre but you can get three uh, uh, tons because, because of that and then finding out which of the clones, um, as, as if somebody has resolved that question <laughs> now, uh, 50 years later. But uh, the, the most popular clone and the one that won the medals uh, for uh, um, Irie was uh, Vadensville. It was the clone. It's not now. I personally think Badensville is the best clone, but people don't agree with me on that. And most, if you had to name the most popular clone, it would certainly be Pomard. 
Vadensville not too far behind, and then the Dijon clones. But that's been something that is still evolving, and hopefully we're going to go to having a, a, or a special Oregon clone. And uh, the Erath clone, I think, is a good uh, nominee for that. You mentioned phylloxera earlier and, and having to adjust to phylloxera, like, like many vineyards, most almost all vineyards in the area. Tell me about that process of, of replanting and, and of sort of making it financially as viable as it could be. How did you do the work? How did you make it work? And, and where did you find the stock and, and that you needed to, to kind of replant? Well, first of all, you had to know what was happening, where it was going. And so uh, we got Tony with her uh, camera and we rented a 185 and she would sit in the co-pilot seat, open the window and take pictures at three or 400 feet of the vineyard because you could really see what was happening, where it was going, how it compared to other areas and the like. And so she probably knows more about this than anybody around because she saw it from the air constantly. But that, that was one thing you had to watch. And I guess um, a couple people uh, just uh, hunkered down and, and barreled through with phylloxerated plants. Um, we talked to quite a few of them when <clears throat> we had to decide what we were going to do. And we decided simply pulling it out uh, as bad as it seemed that it was the best solution. And I guess there is now, according to what Lee has told me, there are, uh, is a study that indicates that the uh, phylloxera does not um, avoid a grafted plant, but will make a cut on it, and the plant's response is something that the phylloxera cannot compete with, and so it moves on down or away, and, and it solves a problem. But it's not that the plant is actually immune to phylloxera because of it being a grafted plant. It's interesting, last night our grandson John, who has a, a drone, flew over the vineyard with his drone and took all these pictures of us and down below. And what an improvement over <laughs> hanging out the, win the window with him holding on to the back of me so I don't fall out the window. And that or losing the camera, I mean, that would have been a real disaster. <laughs> you just can't replace a camera like that. That's, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm curious about uh, the sort of the growth of the business. You mentioned kind of some of the milestones along the way, starting to make your own wine. Uh, tell me at what point, uh, obviously a multi-generational business. Tell me at what point the next generation starts playing a factor in Croft, and, and take us through kind of some of the, the the big growing steps in there for you in the in the last uh, 30 plus years. Go ahead. We um, we had a group of people that would come help us harvest early on. And our daughter, who lives in Portland, would organize them, and then they would come, there would be maybe six or seven. And they did, at that time, the sorting of the grapes. And our, so our uh, crew, our vineyard crew, would bring the buckets in and then dump them, and the people from Portland would, would sort. 
So as part of that process, we brought Lee up to help us with that here, and Terry, and, and at one point John came in, uh, even JC, who's our, the oldest grandson, who's a lawyer in Anchorage. So we were all around the harvest in a participatory way, and that's how they got involved. Um, and they just loved it. Kim, uh, I guess that's the best way to describe it. One of the things that we did learn, and I think um, wineries that we sell to would tell you that the fruit that they, that we deliver is the cleanest fruit. It, there may be others that are just as clean, but it's the cleanest fruit in, in the valley. And that's because we sort at the bin and throw out when the, the a harvest crew brings it in. They don't just dump it in the, in the bin. They put down their their bucket. They pick up empty buckets and they go back to harvesting. So it speeds things up to them. And then we have our crew that spreads out the grapes so that you can see uh, clusters. If you just dump it in there. A pile, you can't see what's in there, and if you try to see what's in there, you start pushing the grapes around, and that starts the breakage and, and the, of, the, of the seal, and the, it starts to ferment. And so we have really clean fruit. We <laughs> once at a winery that um, had its own uh, grapes, and was getting grapes from us, and they sort would, of. <laughs> sort of, no, they, they, they had their own field. And uh, at uh, Christmas, we got the award for having the cleanest fruit <laughs> that was delivered rather than their own crew at, at their own winery. And that, that and the compliment that one year when we had several uh, bins of fruit waiting to be dumped by the winery, somebody walked by and said, uh, hey, did you see that fruit there from, from Croft? Uh, that looks like it's pretty clean stuff. And it was a particularly bad year, and the guy said, yeah, and it's organic. <laughs> As if that was what, it wasn't us that made it impossible to believe it was that it was organic and it was that good. And so we kind of pride ourselves on our ability. I mean, the plants have to do their job, but if they do their job, we're not going to mess it up by having leaves or dirt or um, things that are in the, what we deliver to the winery that shouldn't be there. Which is why you always want a lawyer running your vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Or not, one or the other. <clears throat> So with the with the, the, the second and now third generations of, of Croft kind of working here as well, talk about the evolution of business. Talk about, talk about the site we're sitting in now, for example. How did how did this site come to be, and, and what was sort of the goal of the, of this tasting room? She bought it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. We were looking for a place. It's sort of hard. We were always gonna move from Alaska, but we never actually do. So at one point we were gonna move from Alaska and we came down to look around. We found this 
this site. And it checked all the boxes that I had. And, and about the same time, Lee and Terry f found it well. So we compared had, notes, and we found we were talking about the same site. Yeah, they had come down without us even knowing to look at Oregon and see if they wanted to move here. And we were there, and then I found out they were here. And I said, hey, you guys, come on over. Let's look at this piece of property. This was a derelict building that had been, as near as we, we can tell, it was built in 1905. It's been, it's, we tried, Terry helped uh, put it together with the contractor and keep it the way it was, not tear it down. We had one architect who said, just tear it down and start over, you know. It's been a grange hall, it's been a dance hall, it's been a fruit stand, it's been a classroom, a, I think. A classroom, a lot of different uses for this building. Uh, but when we saw it at first, it was really, there were bats and bugs and the walls were, John came in and helped, uh, that's our grandson who's here, tear down the old walls. We kept the floor, which this floor was part of what they used. And we added a deck onto it or whatever. But it took a while, Lee, Lee and Terry moved down here and they spent a lot of time fixing the septic system, which it turned out when we bought it was put in backwards. Um, you know, there are lots of things like that. So thank God they were here to do that. One, one thing I think we can say without much fear of contradiction, that this is a unique site in, in viticulture because uh, back before they built a dam up, up a river on the Willamette, the floods were even worse and it made sense when you got rid of a car that you put it along the banks because it protected the banks and the, the vegetation grew up over it and nobody could see it but so you had a kind of a free bank uh, building system and protecting and one day Terry and uh, Lee were in here and a guy comes up to the door and he says um, hi I'm so and so and friendly and he said um, do you mind if I look around up there for a little bit? And he said, well, wh wh why? He said, well, I'm looking for a 1935 Buick or, or something, and uh, I think it's right up there. And well, why are you interested in it? He, sa they, he says, because I think I was conceived in it. <laughs> and, and that's what my... <laughs> My sister thinks she was conceived in it as well, and I'd just like to see it. And I, so I don't think anybody else has that type of relics of the history of their um, tasting room. It's, um, they found it, a buggy, they found a still, they found all kinds of stuff as they were cleaning out the banks. And I guess at one point, maybe it was in the not too long ago, a guy made a junkyard out of it. <laughs> so with with this space, how has this changed the, the business? How has this changed, and, and what what kind of consumer do you do you attract here? Well, I think they could speak more to the people who they attract here. But it is uh, we learned we wanted a tasting room. We made wine. The wine was doing well. All of our uh, people who were using our grapes were doing well. We were then we made a certain amount of wine. We won quite a few prizes with our wine. 
um, in different different magazines and different whatever. So we thought, well, we should probably, and we tried selling it through the supermarkets and all that, and that worked a little bit, but increasingly people would say, you should have a tasting room. So that was part of what we were looking for when we did this. Marion County didn't really agree. They didn't want us to have a tasting room unless we had, we're growing grapes on the site, which we wouldn't because it's lower and not good for great kind of grapes that we wanted. So we had to spend two, well, four years, it took us four years fighting with Marion County and all of this to get all this permits to do what we're gonna do, but we now have all that. And, um, and it turned out the state legislature had made a ruling that we could do what we wanted to do, but Marion County commissioners had not agreed. So at one point we had to get two, we had two legislators that were, that were uh, talking to the Marion County people. Look, this is what we had in mind. You know, we want you to be able to do this. So uh, it was, it's been an interesting <coughs> legal problem getting this in, but it's all now done. But, but tasting rooms are part of the larger fight on how you divide up the proceeds of a bottle of wine and the traditional uh, um, uh, distribution was a, a, a price to the grower, a price to the wholesaler, and a price to the winery. And the wholesalers were often getting a third or more of it, and I think most wineries and vineyards will tell you they don't deserve it. And so tasting rooms may really bring it back to just two players that are splitting up the proceeds. And in a small state like Oregon compared to a huge state like California in population, doing it on this scale really makes sense and you really do have people that identify not so much with your wine, even though they do that, but they identify with this, that, that they see it. They think, I, I know about that wine because I've seen the place where it's been made, or I've, seen the, I've talked to the people that help grow the grapes, and you don't have that when you are selling everything through a wholesaler. So I think, it is something that it's not unique to Oregon, but it is something that Oregon should and is taking tremendous value. You're getting back to the, the producer and the consumer being able to know each other instead of just, oh, I heard from some rating service that this is good wine. And we, again, trying to work with the environment. Um, we are, they put solar panels on from our, the house there that, that feeds to here. And we, when we make more solar power than we um, need, then it feeds back into the system. So we like that too, that we can give extra to the system. So, so we're not on, we're not producing just one thing. We're producing two, <laughs> wine and electricity. <clears throat> so, Bill, I know you're you're part of the story ends a little bit earlier. So, tell me about sort of leaving the industry and what you what you've done since being part of Oregon Wine. They were always the ones that got things done. They had that determination and follow through. <clears throat> 
I was the concept guy, not that good at concept, oh, but that's not good. Uh, it, it, the friendship started in 1955 when we drew each other as um, roommates at the University of Texas in Austin, and it's grown since then. We went to Alaska together, we practiced law together. Um, but even after I left in 75, that we hadn't passed our common point. The, the friendship was, had the bond of family and it still does. And so we just always stayed in touch and got together when we could. And uh, I was an outsider by that time in the, in the wine process, what was happening here. But every time I came, it was a pleasure to be in a wine-growing valley and uh, places that are more like Napa when I first lived there than it is now. If you go to Napa on a nice summer day now, you got traffic, you got high prices. Uh, I don't see that contamination here yet. And so that's always been an appeal to me and, and many peoples. And you've added, we, we had, our first wine was uh, three parts of Pomar, two parts of Vadensville, and one part of 115. And that's my favorite mix for the Pinot. But we have quite a few different clones, and then Chancey's added Cabernet Franc, you also added a, what, what else is on the, on the cross now? There's Gamay, Gamay and... Yeah, but uh, probably we're as famous for our Sauvignon Blanc as we are for our Pinot Noir. Why did you, why did you choose to plant what you did when you did? Why, why did you choose to add varietals when you did? Uh, the person that was the wine, uh, the uh, vineyard manager then his parents owned a um, winery and they wanted Sauvignon Blanc. And so um, he talked us into planting Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, Carol Adams made some really nice Sauvignon Blanc. And I'm still run into people <laughs> that say, oh yeah, I know about Croft Vineyards. We got Carol Adams Sauvignon Blanc. 30 years ago type of thing. And so that's been kind of an interesting uh, adjunct to this whole thing of where are we going with a, a, um, a, a the wine industry going. I, I think 30 years ago, people would have said, we're gonna go with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and that's it. And, um, King Estate and others said, well, hey, what about Pinot Gris? And then that took hold. But that was still, those were the three grapes that were gonna grow here. And um, now they're talking about a, a lot more. And it's interesting that uh, we, we've sold um, Williamson Bailey, um, but the, the winery vineyard that we sold it to is more famous for Viognier and uh, Tempranillo and other wines that 
they're making and here in Polk County. And so that's been a substantial change. In addition to, from the vineyard side, what, what are the other what kind of industry-wide changes do you see? What's, what are the biggest differences in Oregon wine now versus your first impressions of it? Well, one that um, the, the bottling is done by a moving van, not at the vineyard. Um, secondly, a big emphasis on um, what's on the label. I was pretty um, adamant, if, if I could be as a seller, that when I was selling to a good winery, I wanted Croft Vineyards on the label. And that makes a big difference. People would have never known we had Sauvignon Blanc. Um, they'd known it was growing someplace, that Carol Adams was getting it, but they wouldn't know where. And so that makes a, a big difference. And Andrew but the, Rich, the, who was Andrew Rich, Patty Green, and uh, Jay Christopher. Jay Christopher all had our, our label. Our, but but the wine tasting rooms, I think, are the big the big change. What from your perspective, Tony? What are, what are the changes you've seen? Anything besides that? <clears throat> I guess I see the concern for climate change, and it's sort of what Chase just said: the concern for developing what other grapes should be grown. At one point. Chancey wanted to put in some Simeon. And again, I said, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Whoever heard of Simeon? And are we sure you want to do that? Yeah, I did. He's out And we have then put a little bit, we, we had a winemaker then, who put a little bit of Simeon in, our, in the wines that we made. It was, uh, and those wines, Normally, Sauvignon Blanc will die off after a period of time, but if you have a little Simeon in it, it'll last and it'll change. We drank an old, old bottle of Sauvignon Blanc the other night that had some Simeon in it. It didn't taste like the original, but it was very, very good, very crummy. So we've, and we've planted, he's planted a little more Simeon to go to sell. But it's just, I guess, I see a diversity of clones of grapes. I don't always support what he wants to do. I'm, I did the same thing with Cabernet, Cabernet Franc. I don't like Cabernet Franc. What do you mean we're going to? Oh, well, we planted it and it's looking like it's going to be good. I, I think we are the dominant producer of Simeon in the Willamette Valley. We have eight rows. Some of the time, because one of them is not in with the other seven, it gets harvested erroneously. But usually we harvest eight rows. Um, and uh, that could make, you know, maybe 100 cases of Simeon. So that's, Simeon is interesting, but nobody else that I know of grows it. And I know other people have tried it, and they said we couldn't get it to ripen, but that was back in the <coughs> 80s. And now I think it's a different deal. But it is different from the, re the rest of the crop. We finish harvest and then wait two weeks and then harvest the Simeon. Or, uh, 
based on that, I want to talk about the future of Oregon wine a little bit. Bill, I actually want to start with your perspective because you mentioned what Napa looked like in the 70s versus what Napa looks like now. As you look ahead for Oregon wine, what do you see the industry looking like in the future? Do you see it turning into that or do you see a different vision for the future? Uh, I'll just say when I first moved to Alaska, I mean to Albuquerque, New Mexico, you couldn't get a lot of Oregon wines at the wine stores. Now you have a pretty rich source of, 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 and, and quite a variety in uh, Washington wines too. Uh, and, and that's been a very positive development. And uh, not only that variety, but, but the competition just makes the wine better. And I've enjoyed that. I, assume that the success is going to increase increase the traffic um, but that's progress i suppose and but it's still a growing valley it's still an agricultural valley that has a more human pace to it uh, and and i think you know napa to, to me anyway napa has lost that uh, I hope it doesn't happen here, but it could. What about for you two as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What, what is the industry going to look like in the coming years? I, I think there's three big challenges, uh, uh, including climate change overall. And one is um, the um, human effort versus the mechanical effort, how that's going to play out. And certainly there's a lot of things that are done mechanically now that were uh, 30 years ago were done by hand. And there is a, there's this constant tension between how much you can do mechanically and how much there is for personal Involvement, and I don't think you're ever going to eliminate the personal involvement. The people out there that have to make a decision about a few plants instead of a section or, or rows. But that is going to be one of the big challenges because we're on hillsides. The ability to use mechanical harvesting is lessened, but it's not eliminated. And, and people that uh, we can see from our vineyard are using mechanical harvest um, on their hillside. So that whole thing about mechanics versus humans is going to be a big fight. Obviously with climate change, the question is what grapes you're going to grow. There's no reason why Oregon can't continue to have a tremendous Pinot Noir um, uh, harvest, but other, many, many wineries are looking for other things. Tempranillo, Sivert, um, um, Syrah, Tanat, a lot of others. I happen to like Cabernet Franc uh, just as a, a planted an acre to see what would happen. I mean, it grows in the Loire Valley. They're famous for it. And if you look at the map, Oregon and the Loire Valley are almost on the same parallel. Uh, so that's going to be uh, a change. Um, and um, 
then the way you market it, the, the closer that the producer of the wine can get to the actual buyer of the wine, I think the better off Oregon is going to be. California is so large that it is going in the opposite direction. There, there's Cabernet that in uh, California that says sells at $20,000. That's $20,000 a ton for, for uh, Cabernet. How can they do that? Well, they do it because they sell their wine at $500 or $700 a bottle. Oregon has got a great reputation with Pinot Noir, but nobody is selling Pinot Noir in Oregon at $400 a bottle. And so uh, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be more places like ours where, where you have direct confident, uh, connection between the people that are drinking the wine and the people that have made the wine. And I think that's very healthy, and I think it, it provides a base for Oregon that is going to survive various ups and downs in, in the market. So I think that, that Oregon is going to set the stage for buildings like this, and uh, that's a big part of its future. One other thing I have thought of to say, we. We have been, Chancey's been very good at picking vineyard managers. We, our son is now our vineyard manager. He's doing a very, very good job. Before our son, Ray uh, Luclo, mm -hmm. who now is the uh, buyer for King Estate, was our vineyard manager. And before that, we had one that didn't work too well. Well, or after that, we went ahead one that I won't mention that didn't work too well, but for how many years? How many, uh, ten? ten? Die Chris yeah. was our um, vineyard manager. And I think Die got his chops on, on uh, environmental, uh, um, uh, organic from, from working with us. And then he goes on and he manages, and he's all over the valley. He's, I really like Die, and I see him all the time at all these conferences. Uh, we've been able to kind of work with people on organic, and, and I can remember even the cold weather conference where there wasn't any discussion of how you do it differently or organically. And one example of that is at one point when Ray went early to, or went to uh, King Estate, there was a period in there when we had somebody else manage it before our son came down. And this, he, he was, telling them how to um, spray. And they weren't, they were, in organic, you spray for next year as well. You, you keep the canopy, you try to do something that will carry on. If you're, if you're doing the other kind of poison, it's quick, it's whatever, but it, it's not based on next year. We have a, uh, Esteban is our, our field manager, and he's been there for many years. And he was saying, as they started to spray that wrong, wait, you don't want to do this, you know? And, and there's a lot of things that people need to learn about how to do it organically. And that's probably what I think is going to happen next in the water conference and a lot of other areas. We've had three great uh, vineyard managers. 
um, Ray and uh, and Di and uh, Lee, and um, uh, Lee is the best vineyard manager. He has, interestingly enough, done things that he didn't see done at some other place where he was managing the vineyard, but things that just occurred to him that made sense. And um, so we are much better organized and have, uh, but I'm not in any way being critical of Ray or Di. They both did a fabulous job and I think learned quite a bit while they were here. Um, by whatever means uh, it took. Um, but Lee has done a great job. All right, so you talk about the future of the industry. What's in the future for you? For people who are just gonna be growers and then gonna make, then made wine and then sold wine and then had the need to have a tasting room, we now are going into actually building a winery here, a winery. And we, our son, our grandson, John, and his significant other are both uh, taking... Amber. Uh-huh, Amber, are taking uh, wine making at Jamaica. And they've been working, at least uh, John's been working in and out with Chris Hyder for many years. And Chris has just taken his winery down, right? He doesn't want to run it anymore, so all of the... We bought all of his tanks, whatever, whatever, and we're gonna have a winery here. I don't, it's not gonna be a great big one, but we are, we're gonna do it. For people who just started out just to grow, we've sort of <laughs> gone on to a lot of things. I've said, what, are we? <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time saying that. It's kind of the final frontier to finally build the winery, so, tell, yep. so it's gonna be here on this, on yeah. this side? Yeah, I think so. Right, John? So with that, what will that, what, what, what does that give you for the, for the next, for the sort of the next phase of Croft? What, what, what will that do for the business? Well, we're almost at the reti totally retirement stage, so this is passing on to the next generation. But it'll, it'll give us the ability, I think, to make small lots of things that we wanted to try. Um, you know, when you go to a custom winery, they have to have a certain amount, a certain volume before they can mess with it. Um, and I think we will produce some small amounts. And, and Lee was even talking about maybe letting people give, having something that comes into the tasting room and letting people mix their own and decide which one they like together. There's all kinds of innovative, interesting things that can be done, but it will not probably be done by us. It'll be done by the new generation. It, and um, I, I think it's hard for me to try to say what else would be done, I would not have had any idea about making these tables. But Tony insisted that we take a, basically a, a trunk of an oak tree that fell down at the vineyard, preserve its wood for four or five years, and then have these tables made. And it, it, uh, the idea of the tables and the way they came out is completely Terry's doing. 
and it does involve some stones that Tony contributed, but the, each table is the same and each table is different from all of the others. They have the same basic idea, but they have a slightly different pattern. You can't put them all together and say this is the Willamette River or, or this is the, the um, uh, some creek tributary. It is unique and I think it, th this building has at least five different, maybe six different woods in it, all from o Oregon. And so, and it has a history of at least uh, 80 years, maybe more um, I mean, there are other older buildings in, in Oregon, but this is, is one of the ones. And it's what architects hate. They do not like, and part of the reason is, it's hard to renovate these buildings. We have windows here, I bet you that uh, um, only two or three of them are interchangeable with the rest because they're, one of them is 24 and a half inches versus 20, three and a seven eighths and all of that. It just, and, and as they get older, they shift and anyway, so that's a, a challenge. And I wouldn't even try to compete with Amber and John and the way they, they are running the, the uh, stomp. It is just marvelous. So um, I have some ideas, but I think Terry and Lee and Tony and Amber and John were way ahead of me on ideas. So I'm it's just running Stomp. behind trying to catch up. It's named Stomp because it was the Grange Dance Hall and people stomp grapes. So the history of this building had dances in it, so why not? That was its working name and I never really thought it was going to be its real name, but it evolved into its real name. Call it that long enough, and it just sort of sticks. Yep. After a while, it just goes. Well, that's all the questions that I have for the three of you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? We covered a lot. We did cover a lot. Yes. Well, thank you all for this. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing your time, sharing your space with us, and sharing your stories. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.